from the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU 91.1 FM and Brown College at the University of Virginia, this is Symposia. Welcome to Symposia. I'm Sage Tangway. The saying goes, if you can't do, teach. But one of the most remarkable things about a university is that, in addition to teaching classes, the professors are also still doing a lot in their respective fields. At Brown College, we have the pleasure of having faculty fellows to bolster programming for students and increase the accessibility of knowledge here at UVA. Today's guest recently released her first book, a major milestone for any academic. Let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Tess Farmer. I am a cultural anthropologist, and I teach at the University of Virginia. Um, I'm in the Department of Anthropology in the Program and Global Studies. Excellent. And you're also a faculty fellow of Brown College, correct? I am, yes, very luckily. And you just published a book. Is this your first book? It is, yeah. It came out uh, on Valentine's Day, so just a, a little over a month ago. Tell us about it. The title is Well Connected, Everyday Water Practices in Cairo. Basically, you know, the, the elevator pitch is that um, it's a book about what happens when people are not able to access water and wastewater services in the way that we sort of have the imagination that people do. So from some kind of governmental or official authority. So, um, you know, how do people get potable water and manage wastewater when they don't have access to those kinds of state provided services? How do they agitate to get those services provided to them, and then what happens when they get them, the sort of consequences and potentially unintended roll-on effects of that. How long have you been working on it? Oh, very long. <laughs> very long time. This is, uh, it started out as my dissertation project, so it's been well over a decade. Awesome. How did that feel? <laughs> to finally be done? <laughs> yeah. It feels fabulous. And, you know, I mean, I think a lot of things in the academy, you're building the airplane while you're flying it. You don't actually know what something is supposed to be or how you're supposed to do it until you're sort of in the middle or maybe even done <laughs> doing it. Uh, and that was definitely my experience. Um, you you learn how to write a dissertation by writing a dissertation. You learn how to write a book by writing a book. But um, once that first one is done all of a sudden the logic of a book makes a lot more sense. Mm. And it was pretty easy to sit down and then map out my second book project and feel pretty confident that there was like a solid logic to that, that, you know, I'm sure it will be adjusted, but like there's a there there (laughs) that certainly wasn't when I began the first book project. What was a, a misconception you had perhaps at the beginning? You know, I think... It's such a rite of passage for an academic to to publish a book. And I'm very lucky in that I have a really close group of um, friends and interlocutors. We met at a joint panel in 2015, and then uh, twice a year we get together and we workshop our work. And so I had seen the progress that several of these friends had gone through to publish their books. I got to watch it happen right as I was sort of beginning the process. So I had some friends who were able to like hold my hand a bit because they were just enough ahead. I think maybe the biggest misconception was that you have to have it all worked out perfectly before 
you get really serious about the publication process. There's a lot of work that goes in after you submit the document to the publishing house or to the um, to the publishers, and um, which in this case is John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University Press. And uh, you know, I think I, I probably would have submitted it earlier if I had realized what the process looked like on the other side. But yeah, and I was really lucky with the whole team at Johns Hopkins. They have been fabulous. I would highly recommend them to folks who are like first-time academic authors. Um, Robin Coleman, who was the acquisitions editor, um, he really held my hand, especially in the beginning. We had several really important conversations where he said, okay, here's how to think about this process and what to anticipate you know, from other people in the process. And that was really helpful because it's such a a black box before you arrive. Um, and then everyone that I worked with at the press was really fabulous. Charles Dibble, who actually had spent years in Cairo working with the American Research Institute there. And then he sent me uh, like a, an enormous architectural volume about Sabils, which is the second book project that he knew about from a friend in his time in Cairo. So it sort of felt like they brought me into the academic family there. Wow, that's excellent. That's such a a heartwarming story. (laughs) Yeah, I felt very lucky. Yeah. Going into a little bit more about the content of the book, first, I just want to ask you what in your personal and academic development brought you to the point where this is what you wrote your dissertation on and, and wanted to eventually publish into a full manuscript? How far back do you want me to go? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, my name is Farmer, but I'm also a farmer's daughter. (laughs) My dad was in the agricultural sector uh, in eastern Washington, Washington state. You know, water politics there are really important. And so I feel like it was dinner table conversation in my childhood talking about who gets water, how it's allocated, what the conflicts look like, different, you know, customary rights um, around fishing and access to water on the Columbia River. It... um, It felt very present in my life as I was growing up. And so when I was looking for a dissertation project, the thing about water, one of the things about it was that it's so very fundamental to life that if you're looking at water, you're looking at everything. And water kind of becomes the prism through which other things become visible. And in that way, it's an excellent ethnographic object um, because it's so polyvalent. It's so ubiquitous. It's so fundamental to human life. It's so important to the way that people organize themselves and relate to each other. An earlier iteration of a research plan had been to look at agricultural water, um, especially the way in which uh, aquifer water Mm. um, uh, in the oasis of Siwa was being used. Um, But it wasn't really possible to do research there. And so I was thinking about water in cities. And I had a friend who worked for the Ministry of Antiquities. And he said, well, if you're interested in water in cities, you should go to the area where I ended up doing research is Bitharallah because the wastewater from that area was flowing down into the areas below because the area is up on a limestone ridge and the wastewater was you know, seeping down into the ground and threatening the 
foundations of archaeological remains that are very important, including of the city of Fustat, which it was uh, founded by the Fatimids in like 969, I think. And so it's a really sort of important location. And there are other archaeological sites nearby. And the wastewater from the informal settlement was causing problems sort of maintaining those spaces. So that's how I ended up in the research location that I did. So what do water systems look like in Cairo and and in the area that you were studying? Like a lot of places in the global south, there's a real mixture of the way in which water systems operate. So there's sort of centralized modernist water infrastructure that you would sort of anticipate in some sections of the city. And the idea is you're going to expand those. So the piped potable water and piped wastewater systems where government is running the processing or the treatment of, of the potable water, bringing pumping it to your, your house, and then you're paying for that utility. In some places that's done, you know, with a private entity, but a lot of places it's run by municipal governments. And certainly there are problems with that system. Um, There's a lot of leakage and loss in that system. Um, There are problems with getting the right sort of balance in the treatment of the potable water. So sometimes there are contamination by by sewage. Um, Sometimes there's overchlorination. The pipes themselves can be um, degraded one of the engineers that I talked to there said, you know, in some places, the water's not even going through pipes anymore. It's just going through sort of a hole in the ground where the pipe used to be. But the idea sort of follows, I, I suppose, most of our expectations about how water operates in cities. And then, you know, there are a lot of places that sort of tap extra legally into neighboring areas. And for a long time, the area where I did my research was the same as in many, you know, in the case in in many informal settlements where they um, bring in sort of uh, unlicensed plumbers and they tap into the water system that is in the next neighborhood over and draw it up into their houses. Another version of it um, in places where that has either not yet happened or hasn't happened for other reasons, there's often a situation in which people are either carrying water from where they can or they're buying water that is circulated on, you know, trucks or donkey carriages. One of the sort of global ironies is that the people with sort of the most modest incomes end up being the ones who pay the highest price for their water. And the management of wastewater, at least in um, the neighborhood where I am, uh, where I was doing my research, what they did is they dug septic tanks into the ground in front of the buildings where they were, and they were unlined concrete blocks uh, sort of just there, and they were often just covered with like a movable stone or a piece of plywood, and they were very porous. There was a lot of leakage, overflow, spillage, and so the sewage was sort of just a constant presence in the street. Mm. And this is, of course, happening in like an arid climate. Is is that the correct way to to characterize it? So it's it's pretty dry. 
what's the rainfall like in Cairo? Very, very minimal. Um, so the water comes from the Nile. That's really sort of how Egypt operates. There's the, you know, the classic uh, quote by Herodotus, this Greek historian, that Egypt is the gift of the Nile. I don't remember the exact percentage, but it's the significant majority of water um, for use in agriculture and in um, in drinking water municipal systems is coming from the Nile itself. And so the Nile Valley is is pretty verdant. It's very green. Um, it has long, long history of agriculture. Outside of that, it's desert, some sage desert and some sort of just like sand dune desert, sort of the quote about Egypt is that um, about 5% of the land mass of the country is arable land, and that's along the Nile. And then out as it spreads into the delta, um, as it's hitting the Mediterranean, and then some locations on the north coast, very few places along the coast with the um, uh, the Red Sea, a, f- a little bit in the Sinai Peninsula, and then some um, smaller oases. There's sort of the global indicators about water poverty and and water stress, and Egypt is rapidly approaching sort of the most critical level of that. Yeah, because, you know, I imagine along with agriculture and, and green growth following along the Nile, I'm sure a lot of population does as well, but that doesn't mean that there aren't people extending far out from that. What is the population spread like in these areas where they're sort of having to reach back or, or collect water elsewhere and bring it there? You know, Cairo is a very densely uh, populated city. I think 25 million people in the greater Cairo uh, area. Different sections are more or less densely populated. The The place where I was it's hard to get official numbers for the residents, but there was an estimate of like 700,000 living on about two square kilometers. And so very densely populated. Very dense, yeah. Yes. Um, and so that is one of the problems, right? So you have a lot of vertical um, living. And in city spaces, especially with these informal systems, the higher you up in the building you get, the harder it is to get water. For a long time, even if the people at the ground floor had gotten or a few floors up had gotten access through the extra legal connections to water pipes, there'd be people in the floors above who still had to carry it from their neighbors um, or a tap on the bottom floor up to their homes. So densely populated and verticality was definitely a challenge. You mentioned sort of the unexpected side effects of when areas like this actually get good access to water. Sometimes greater access doesn't always mean perfect utilization. No, (laughs) it definitely does not. In the expectation, sort of the expectation according to the global ideal of what these modernist water infrastructures are supposed to look like, they've sort of planned it out, right? Like they've got an idea about how you organize at um, sort of descending scales and what that's supposed to look like in homes. Um, But often those systems don't work the way that that imagination runs. And the, the blame then is often cast on sort of corrupt governments or technologically illiterate end users. And the idea is that that infrastructure is the right thing to do 
We know that it it's the best thing that we can do um, around water and wastewater to ensure sort of the health and well-being of populations. And we just need to sort of figure out how to create this infrastructure faster, cheaper, and more enduringly, right? That's sort of the idea. Um, and yet, you know, in, in many places in the globe, including places in the U.S., as you, you were mentioning, uh, water access doesn't work for all sorts of reasons that don't get included in that story. You know, the, the story of the area um, showed a number of those sort of gaps. One was that the state really had a, a pretty clear plan given the grant funding and the way that this, you know, the engineering had set it out. They had laid the pipes out sort of in the street, um, down to these smaller streets, but they weren't connecting homes to the pipes. It was resp- the responsibility of the house to make sure that they were doing that connection. And they often could not, or it was really hard to find the funds to do that. You know, they would go through these processes to try to build social relationships with these young men who were often coming from the same area in Upper Egypt um, that they had had migrated from and sort of build these fictive kinship um, and and cordial social relationships with these people to sort of entice them to come and at night after having worked all day on these state systems to then create these connections into homes and do all the work that you needed to do to replumb the internal system to make it work with what was being laid out. And so there was a disjuncture there, right? It, you, you had to do quite a lot of work to get that system from down the middle of the street into your home and to make it function in your home. There wasn't enough labor or funds often to make that a a very easy process. Uh, It definitely became a financial hardship for people. In addition, it sort of stressed social relations that people had built up in order to manage the previous system. So People had to sort of learn where and when things were going to work in particular ways, and that sort of stressed potentially some some relationships that they had relied on for well-being. They also had to sort of learn a whole new set of technology, right? So you had to know where and when the pipes were, and women then became pretty smart about this. You know, in the informally um, – instituted potable water system, they they knew where the junctures were. They knew like if they didn't have water, um, they kind of knew how far out they had to go to figure out what the scale of water loss was. So was it a cut at their house? Was it just their street? Was it the larger section of the neighborhood? So they had this sort of mapped out and they needed to sort of reroute that and it became less obvious where the potential cut was with the new systems coming online. I think one of the other largest issues was that these infrastructural systems became a part of a story about getting legal land tenure because the people who live in this area did not have legal land tenure. The land itself was considered state-owned desert land. And in the 1970s, a permit had been um, given to the Madzi Corporation to build luxury housing in the area. They for a number of reasons, didn't immediately move to do that. And part of this was about pushback from the Ministry of Antiquities because of the important sites in and near the area. But where those those sort of two titans were battling it out, 
many, many people came and squatted on that land. In terms of squatted, what I mean is they um, they did not have legal um, permission to be there and build homes. You know, the area essentially had been taken over by gangs at a certain point, but people there referred to as gangs and they sold off plots of land, but they were selling it in that sort of system of local management of land, not tenure with the land tenure, like legal ownership of that space. And so the area had been trying through the court to gain the right to purchase their land. And they actually had won the right to purchase their land, but the ruling didn't specify when the price was fixed. So was it at the time of the ruling, you know, a couple of decades later when prices had gone up significantly, or was it at the time that they um, had had settled there? And so there was still sort of ongoing legal tension about how they were going to get legal claims to their land. And part of the story was, okay, well, can you show us a history of being here by utility bills and by a history of connections to state services. But that also meant that the state will sort of uh, all of a sudden had additional access to information about people um, who claimed what piece of land, how big their house was, who lived in that space, what those people did. And people were very leery of that sort of new visibility um, because they didn't trust uh, how that information would be used in general and very specifically because there had been such a long history of trying to move them out. You know, continuously pieces of the area had been sort of bulldozed and then people had um, – uh, rebuilt homes for a long, long time. That had been the process um, up in, you know, from the, you know, 1970s through the 1990s. And then sort of essentially at a certain point, there were so many <laughs> that it was, you know, it was what it was, right? Um, but that didn't mean that there had been a sort of official settling of their right to be there. And there was a lot of anxiety that the more information about them there was in the official sort of documentation, the easier it would be for them to be removed. So, yeah, the sort of promise of connectivity also had sort of these possibilities for harm. You know, this this part of the conversation isn't something we have a lot of in the United States. But it, it's not that it doesn't exist. It's just so taken for granted because it the the infrastructure for it sort of happened a little bit before this modern moment. But you can sort of still see the signs of it. It sounds like what you're talking about is is what we conceptualize as incorporation mm. of like a town um, and mm that there's just so many layers of culture is underneath all of the technology or utilities that that any given culture uses that you might not realize is at play until you're looking at a different system and realizing, oh, (laughs) no wonder some of these things are just not applicable. You know, it's you can't just take the technology of one culture and throw it on the map somewhere else and say, oh, look, it works perfectly. It's it's cleaner water. It's, you know, safer for everyone. It's 
there's so many assumptions that that is underneath both systems that you, you can't they're not just immediately applicable. Yes. Um, so as an anthropologist, um, one of the ways to talk about this is like narrow technical solutions to deep social challenges. Um, and that, I think, can be a real problem. You know, we we need technology to advance, right? We, you know, there are a lot of advantages to that. But kind of fixation on technology as the solution uh, often really fails us because it doesn't imagine all of the ways in which people could use it <laughs> um, or would refuse to use it or how it would intersect with social systems, with moral systems, with the current technology, how people already are doing those things. And so, um, yeah, I think that's sort of a, a meta question, right? Certainly as you look at at sort of applying a paradigm that developed in one location to a, somewhere else. Although I think we could also imagine city infrastructures, city water infrastructures as being not just about the way it developed in Euro-America, but also as a product of the imperial project. Right. Um, so like early potable water systems in Cairo were a part of sort of that imperial project to try to manage um, those center locations of governance. Very interesting. What is the main takeaway What's the thing that you hope people understand after reading your book that maybe they didn't have an appreciation for before? I have like three different answers to that sure. question. Perfect. <laughs> you, three is usually what people have. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, so the first one is as, as an ethnographer, I think it's always important to ask about the question of how things are deeply complex and contextual. And so asking the question of how things operate really matters as a fundamental project. And so this is a story of how people are making it work for themselves. And I think it attempts to capture just a portion of the wit and the wisdom and the sort of the complex social and ethical um, systems that people have developed to make their world work and to run technical systems, to make those technical systems operate for themselves. Getting a sense of that how and the complexity of that how I think has its own value. In terms of like audience takeaways, I think there are kind of at, at least a couple of kinds of audiences that I'm thinking about. One is an audience of people who are interested in or participating in global projects around water and wastewater management. And, you know, these are folks who often have exactly the best intentions, right? They want to improve the standards of living and water and wastewater management is one of the most fundamental things. But they're often operating in a paradigm that that um, that sees only particular kinds of things and that has an imagination for why things don't work the way that they think they do um, that can miss some reasons I think things don't work the way they think they ought to work. Um, you know, for example, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago and uh, one of the audience members came up afterwards and he was like, I actually participated in the process of consulting with the um, 
the regulatory body in Egypt to set water pricing. And your book gives me nightmares because of all of the ways in which what we were sort of thinking about didn't take into account the kinds of things that you're talking about. And just uh, yesterday or Wednesday, I guess, somebody came up to me after the talk and said, you know, thinking about water as an economist, like some of the things that you're talking about, like I'd never even think about the problems that people have once it reaches the doorstep of the apartment building to like get it all the way up to the, the top floor. These are just not visible. They're not visible issues. And I think that is the method and the magic of ethnography is uh, you often don't really understand the way things work. Uh, we have ideas about how they work and we describe them based on our ideas. And ethnography says we actually just have to go and say, I don't know how this works. Lead me through this. Start from the very specific, from the real like nitty gritty of it and then follow how things actually operate. And the story that we get very often does not neatly overlap with what we had imagined the story would be. And so ethnographically, what I want them to understand potentially to that that audience is where some of the gaps in in their paradigms are, maybe different ways that they could pay attention, and maybe different ways of thinking about those systems. Um, So that's sort of, I guess, the second answer. And then the third answer would be, you know, for the field, right? It's an academic text. It has its own sort of project in that way. And for me, you know, there has been over the last 15 years, maybe, a real movement to think about utility infrastructure in social science literature as one way to think about governance, What is a state? How does it operate? Um, What is the relationship between sort of entities that that are, quote unquote, state entities or that are supposed to not be state entities but do things that we anticipate state entities are supposed to do, like NGOs that offer services that we often sort of think of as paradigmatically governance functions. And so there has been a really rich body of literature out there that has done a good job of sort of thinking through the material of infrastructure and having that help us understand from the ground up what governance looks like at a variety of scales and with a variety of institutions and thinking about the way in which people are representatives of of institutions but also individual people and there can be conflicting interests. Um, and it's a, I think it's been really profoundly useful. But in the process of the theoretical disarticulation of the state and understanding it more as process, as effect, it seems like the idea of the state has become all pervasive. And so when we talk about systems like water provision, we often talk about them in, in terms of state-society relations, even if that state now is a really municipal you know, sanitation worker. And I think that is important. But what I think that has done is sort of limited our understanding of the social to the way in which people interact with systems of authority. 
And that's not the full story of how things happen. People do all sorts of things that are not about their relationships to systems of authority. And so my modest contribution, I hope, is to think about reattending to the complexity of social relationships that are certainly within the contexts that are set out by some versions of governing structures, but that aren't limited to that. Tessa's book is called Well Connected, Everyday Water Practices in Cairo, and is now available through Johns Hopkins University Press. Symposia is a production of the Brown College Community Media Initiative and the Virginia Audio Collective. This episode was produced by Sage Tangway with assistance from Sophia Moore. Subscribe to Symposia wherever you get your podcasts.